going to begin a new series with you today titled Seven Churches, Seven Choices. And it's really a call to personal revival and spiritual renewal. And that's why each message to each of the seven churches is so important. Now, Jesus addresses each church in this book, and he addresses their specific character. He addresses their condition. He addresses the choices that they need to make. And by the way, there are a couple of churches in here that are not, uh, there's, he finds no fault in them, but they do have a choice to make. And in all of these, there are choices that have to be made. The choices that the church needs to make here are often the choices that you and I need to make, whether it's corporately as a body or individually as members of the church. People say, who is the church? You are the church. Each of us are living temples. When we walk out of here, the, the Spirit of God, if you're saved, indwells you. You are His temple. You are the church. And so every message that applies corporately also applies individually. Now, some people have argued that the, the, these seven churches were just simply local churches with a one-time message given to them from Jesus through John. Others have suggested that the seven churches were individual churches whose messages from Christ apply to churches all through the ages. Still others have argued that the seven churches represent seven different kinds of churches. Well, I believe that all of these ideas are true. I believe they were local churches. Now, uh, historically, we know that. I believe that the messages to each of the churches were for, for that time and for all churches through the ages. And they certainly, these churches and these messages, exhibit characteristics of the different kinds of churches. So I, I agree with all of those things. But one thing is certain. These churches and the messages that they receive from Jesus teach us who we should not be and who we should be. And as I believe you will see in the weeks to follow, uh, these churches, like people, have personalities. Churches have personalities, and those personalities are on purpose. They're given to the churches by God so that God can use a congregation, a church, individuals for a specific part of His kingdom. Churches have personalities. There, no two churches are exactly alike. When I first came here over 21 years ago, I arrived, and shortly thereafter, I was asked uh, some questions. A group of people asked me the question, what was the first thing that I intended to do now that I was the pastor here at Ridgecrest? And I think my answer initially shocked them because I said, immediately I plan to do absolutely nothing. And I think they probably thought, oh no, what have we brought forth? And then after I let that settle in, I said, I said not immediately. And I said, let me tell you why. I said, I've got to discover who this church is. I've got to come to understand who it is, the makeup that, that uh, God has used in this church. I have to understand just who, what its personality is, its dynamic, and I have to then discern what is God's purpose for this local congregation. After four decades in ministry, now I am more convinced than ever that this is true. Each church 
each people, a people of God, uh, is, is called to something, something specific that God has put them on this planet to accomplish. Each church cannot do everything, but each church can do everything that God has created and designed it to do. And that's why God assembles us. That's why he makes us different. That's why he gives us different gifts of teaching of the New Testament is for his purpose and for our existence. I'm also convinced of this, that a church that doesn't live out that purpose and a believer that doesn't live out that purpose will eventually become useless to the kingdom of God and will cease to exist or be uh, put on a shelf of uselessness and die, if not physically, certainly spiritually. And that's why ongoing repentance and revival are essential to your personal spiritual life and to the corporate life of the church. We're going to see this theme repeated in these messages uh, that we'll be looking at. Eight times in the messages to the churches, Jesus utters this phrase to them, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this morning, I want to echo that very statement to you and ask this morning, after we read our text, that you would ask the Spirit of God to speak to you. You are the church. Would you today and in the weeks to come, would you say, Spirit, speak to me from the message of the churches. If you're physically able to do so, stand with me this morning as we honor the reading of God's Word, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, to the angel. And by the way, when he uses that word angel, it is a word that means messenger, and most scholars believe that, the, that Jesus addresses these letters to the shepherd or the pastor of the church because he has the responsibility to lead the people to the truth. And so it says to the angel, to the messenger, to the pastor, to the shepherd of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." Now, Father, would you open our hearts to your truth this morning, Father? I pray that with your Holy Spirit, we would hear. Would you right now ask him to do that? Spirit, speak to me. 
My ears are listening spiritually. Father, would you do that for us? We need your word. So share it, speak it, transform us and change us. We ask it all for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the church at Ephesus might be called the loveless church. And in this series, we'll give, a, we'll give a kind of a nickname to each of the churches. And so you might call this the loveless church. It had so much going for it, and yet it had issues that endangered its life. We have more scriptural information, by the way, about the church at Ephesus than any of the other churches uh, in the seven churches. More about this particular church than any other. In fact, there's a great deal of information about the church at uh, Ephesus. If you go to the, the book of Acts and read through chapters 18 through 20, if you want to uh, read more about it, go do that. All right, That's all about the church at Ephesus. Then there is the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian uh, church. We have a great deal of information. Paul preached at Ephesus for three months Paul preached the gospel of repentance in Ephesus. And, and the Bible says in Acts that after he preached that uh, the fear of God fell on them all, the entire congregation, the fear of God fell on them. And as a result of that, there was a great awakening. And even though there was this great awakening, there was still great opposition. Paul faced this great opposition. For example, it was in Ephesus that Paul uh, cast out some demons, and there were some brothers. We call them the the seven sons of Sceva, and and, uh, uh, they saw what Paul was doing and the apostles were doing and how God was working through them, and they decided they wanted to have the same kind of ministry, a ministry of casting out demons. And so we see an incident where they come to an individual that is greatly possessed of of demons, and they, they, uh, they try to do what uh, a Paul had been doing, and they tried to cast these. Are you familiar with the story? And they tried to cast the demons out, and, and the demons, uh, there's this incredible response, they said. The demons responded to these seven brothers of Sceva and said, Paul we know, and Jesus we know, but who are you? And the Bible says they came out of the man and they jumped on these brothers and they, <laughs> they went around, tore their clothes off, went around stark raving mad and naked. They tried to usurp the power of God. They had no relationship with God. It, this happened in Ephesus. In Ephesus, Paul was confronted by a, silver, a silversmith named Demetrius. He made the, they worshiped uh, in Ephesus, the great goddess of worship was Diana. And they worshipped her, and so the, the, there was a silver industry, and Demetrius kind of headed that up, and they made these idols of Diana, these silver idols, and they sold them. It was a very lucrative business. And Paul came in and told them about Jesus Christ, and many people, because of this awakening, got saved. And when they got saved, guess what they did? Paul says to them, you don't need idols any longer. And so they got rid of their idols Well, Demetrius and the other silversmiths didn't like that very much, and they plotted to kill Paul. This happened in Ephesus. 
They lost their revenue. And by the way, it's worth noting that when God begins moving in a person's life or God begins moving in the life of the church, that hell rises in opposition. Years ago, before I came here, I, had, uh, I worked at uh, the North American Mission Board heading a division for them, and, and, uh, and on one occasion I was an interim pastor across Atlanta in another area of the, of, of that, uh, the Conyers area, and I would go early to beat the traffic to be there, and I had a waiter. I've told you this story a couple times over the years. His name was Dave, and over a period of three weeks, I was able to lead Dave to Christ. And uh, I won't fill in all the other details. A wonderful, marvelous story of transformation. But I told him this after he uh, trusted Christ. I said, now, David, I want to I warn you about something. Your enemy, the devil, hates what you have done. And now he's going to probably open up the floodgates of hell for a while on you to see if he can at least undermine what's happened in your life and in his marriage. His marriage was saved. And I said, so I, I just, I said, that may not happen, but I said, it's not unusual for hell to rise in opposition when God moves and moves in our life. And some of you know that right now because there's some of you here today and you feel like uh, the floodgates of hell have opened up on you. Listen, don't quit. Don't give up. This is normal in the Christian life and in the church. And so I told him that. Well, about two weeks later, he calls me at my office, and he's crying. And he says, he said, man, I don't know what's going on. But he says, ever since I gave my life to Jesus, it's like everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. And if you're listening live stream, watching on television, in this live audience, I just want to remind you that when God starts, but it's not forever because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So don't lose heart. Just expect that there's going to be in this life, you have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good courage. I've overcome the world. Don't be surprised. Paul, as great as the, uh, uh, the miraculous ministry he had, hell unleashed the floodgates against him. And that was in Ephesus. It was in Ephesus that the new believers confessed their ways. They brought their, their books of magic arts and other paraphernalia, and they burned them. You know, it's been said that revival always produces a bonfire in our lives that deals with things that need to be destroyed. It was in Ephesus when Paul finally left that there was a thriving, healthy church. When he left, there was a thriving, healthy church. But 30 years later, there's a new message to the church at Ephesus. And this one is from Jesus and is a call to repentance. And with that in mind, I want to show you three things about this first church that Jesus addresses here, the loveless church of Ephesus. Number one, I want you to see the church was praised. Beginning early in this uh, verses two and three, I know your works. I know you're enduring patiently, he says. So the church was praised. That's the first thing you should notice. Jesus begins by telling them what they are doing right. And, and I, I want you to catch this. We often think that, well, Jesus is watching to catch me in something, to catch me in something wrong. Now listen, if Jesus wants to catch you in something wrong, you're going to give him ample opportunity. 
But what we fail to remember is not only is Jesus looking and watching, but he's watching to see if his children are going to do the right things. He sees when you do the right stuff. And that's what he's saying here. He didn't start off saying, listen, I got something against you. Yeah, you do this right, and you do this right. But I got. he starts off by saying, I want to tell you, I'm watching, and there's some things I'm so proud of you for. There's some things you do good. And he praised them for that. For example, they were praised for their refusal to put up with bad people who tried to corrupt them as believers and as a congregation, both inside the church. How about that? And from outside the church. And he praises them because they refused to put up with these kind of people. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and following, listen to what Paul said. He had, did you know he had warned the Ephesians 30 years prior? He had warned them. Listen to what he said. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church is his. He, he bought and paid for it. But then he adds this. Listen, he says, Paul, these are Paul's words to the Ephesians. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so he commends him, he says, because, because you've not put up with that kind of stuff. But let me just add, that warning is a warning for the church, I believe, of all time. The wolves never go away in our life. And Jesus told us to beware of, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Listen, Listen, brothers and sisters, be aware that there are a lot of people who pretend to be sheep that will try to speak junk into your life under the guise of spirituality. Be careful. And it's the reason that Jesus warned us that we live among sheep. Not only did he say, beware of the false prophets who are ravenous wolves, Jesus also said in Matthew 10, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. They wouldn't put up with it. That's what he commends them for. But he also praises them for their careful testing and dealing with false doctrine and false teachers. He says to them uh, that, that they wouldn't put up with the teaching of the Nicolaitans and they wouldn't tolerate false doctrine or false teachers. These are all good things. We must be doctrinally diligent. He was commending them for their doctrinal diligence. You must be and I must be because have you ever noticed something? The light draws bugs. And when you when you live and proclaim and you speak out and you walk in the truth in this world, you're going to draw some doctrinal bugs. In fact, Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy said this, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings or doctrines of demons. Friend, we're living there the wokeness of our culture is trying its best to invade our churches. Many, unfortunately, are bending 
And many Christians are being influenced by what the Bible calls doctrines of devils. They're believing things that are contrary to the Scripture. Now, that's natural if you have no doctrinal foundation. I thought about Jude. Jude is just one chapter, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what it says. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, in other words, he said, this is what I want to write to you about. I want to write to you about our common salvation, this salvation that we share in Christ. He goes on to say, but I found it necessary instead to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed too long ago, were designed for condemnation or destruction. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord, of, uh, of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Are we there today, people? They were praised because they wouldn't tolerate this. They had a solid doctrinal foundation. Then they were praised for remaining faithful to God, not growing weary in hard times. He said, I know that you are enduring patiently. They'd been steadfast through hardship. They had uh, uh, stayed the course. And by the way, steadfastness through hardship is the real test of our trust in God. Will we live for God when it is hard? And some of you right now, you're, you're struggling to live for God. It's hard. Life is hard. Life is tough. You're in a tough place. There's a, you're on a tough road. People around you don't know. Maybe even your own family doesn't know it. The question is not, is life hard? The question is, is can you trust God when life is hard? Your faith is most demonstrated in the difficulty, not in the ease. And he commends them because it was hard. He said, you're patiently enduring. You're steadfast in your faith. And so he praises them for that. They were steadfast. It reveals our trust in God. I read about a woman who complained to her maid. She said, you're so slow. Do you ever do anything fast? And the maid replied and said, yes, ma'am. I get tired real fast. You know, it's easy to get weary. It's easy to get tired real fast, isn't it? I mean, in, in, in tough times, it's easy just to get tired. And, and Paul wrote that there's a reward for those who are steadfast. He said, let us not grow weary in well-doing or doing good, for in due season we will reap a reward if we do not give up. I bet there's some tired people listening to this message today. I hope you're not tired of the message, but I've, I mean, I, I bet there's some tired people listening today, watching us. You're not necessarily physically tired, though that may be a part of it, but you are tired emotionally and you are tired spiritually and you're ready just to, to chunk it, to throw in the towel, so to speak. Uh, you're, you're tired, you're weary, you're worn down. And I believe that God wants me to tell you something this morning. He wants you to hear this. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep going. The Bible tells us there's a finish line. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and following tells us that there's this finish line down the road, and the only way we cross it successfully is by running that race and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, I have finished the course. It had been a hard course, a difficult course. Do you remember when Paul got saved? Do you remember what God told Ananias? I will show him what great things he must suffer for my sake. And some of you feel like, well, that's me. Listen, I, I believe God wants you to know, God wants you to hear this. Don't quit. Don't stop. You feel like it. You're tired. You're weary. You feel like you're traveling a road all by yourself. And you know what the devil will do when you're in that position? He'll say, and look at these other Christians. Look at that Christian. Look at that Christian. Look at that Christian. They don't seem to be struggling at all. Why does it go so easy for them? Why is it so hard for me? Listen, get your eyes off of them. You will stand before God, and he's going to talk to you about you. You run your race, and I promise you, I promise you, you will not be sorry when you cross the finish line. Second thing I want you to see, okay, so, so the church was praised, but so the second thing is the church had a problem. We, we know that. I mean, we read the text. You're smart. You, you picked that up, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus affirms them for or who they were, but then he says, but here's the problem. You see, though there was much the Ephesians could be praised for, their problem was enough to undermine the good, and that's the primary reason that Jesus spoke to them. Did you get that? There was so much that he could praise them for. But the biggest problem was they'd lost their love for God, and that could, that could work to undermine all the good that they were doing. Their passion for God was gone. I've had that happen to me. Have you? Where you just kind of went through the motions, but you'd lost your love for God. I don't know, it was a little over 30 years ago, and I, was, I had a trip scheduled to Colorado where I was speaking to a uh, national student conference, and, and I got there, and it was a wonderful uh, trip. And, but I remember in my time with the Lord one morning while I was there, the Lord just whispered and said, Ray, you've lost your love for me. Uh, now, there were no issues. I was doing the right things. I, my motive was right. All of that was right. But the passion for God was gone. And he began to whisper into my heart. And I knew that. And I remember finally saying to him, I just had that one of those moments of honesty, which we ought to have all the time. But we can fool ourselves with religious uh, 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 speak to ourselves. Oh, you know. And I had one of those times where I, I said, God, I, I, you're right. And I said this in, in prayer to him. I said, God, I know I'm supposed to love you more, but I don't. I don't even know where to start, I told God. And I, I, I trust it was the Spirit of God who kind of whispered in my heart and said, why don't you just ask me to give you a desire to even have the desire to love him anymore? And that's where I started. And every day I started getting up and saying, Lord, I know I should love you more. I love you, but I know I should, I should. Look, there's a difference in saying I love someone and I'm in love with someone. And I said, God, I love you, but I'm not in love with you like I was. 
And so I began praying this prayer. And I, I counsel you to pray the same prayer if that's where you are. Say, Lord, I know I'm supposed to love you more than I do. So would you give me the desire, watch this, just to desire to love you? Because you see, I just took it all the way down in my own life. I said, God, I don't even have the desire. I have the desire to do what I do, but I, I've lost the desire to do it out of my, the overflow of my love for you. And I want to tell you something. God began to, to do that work in my heart. I won't, I won't forget, I came home from that trip, and I'd been home a day or two, and one night, Allison, I laid down to go to sleep, and she said, what happened to you? I said, well, what do you mean? She said, you're different. Now, I hadn't been bad. I hadn't been a bad husband, and I've made that evaluation, not her. But, I, but she said, you're just different. She said, there's something different about you. And then I told her what had happened. That I'd just been going through the process. I'd just been going through the motions, but I had lost my passion for God. That's what had happened to the Ephesians. And that's what happens to many of us. And that may have happened to you. Now you might say, well, well you know, isn't it better than nothing? And the answer is, yes, it is. It's better than nothing, but that shouldn't be the standard. But it's not better than being from the overflow of a love relationship with God. The last week of our sabbatical, the grandkids came to stay with us. And uh, it was such a delight for us, uh, our our kids went on down to the beach for a few days, and Alice and I, we became the, you know, the grandparent babysitters. And I need another week. <laughs> but it was so sweet, and at night, our oldest is about to turn four, but um, he would love uh, to, for Pops and him to read a book. And so every night we sat on the bed before we went to sleep, and I read a book. And one of those nights, I don't know, second, third night in doing that, I'm reading the book, and he's sitting beside me, and we're reading the book, and all of a sudden he lays his head on my arm right here, and he says these words, Pops, you're my hero. Wow. I don't even know if he has a concept of what a hero is but I'll take it. Pops, you're my hero. And to Allison and I both, over, he would just every once in a while spontaneously, he'd just walk up, put his arms around us and say, or individually he'd come up and just spontaneously say, Pops, I love you. Or Allison, he, he calls Yaya, he'd say, Yaya, I love you. Told her the same thing in another setting, said, Yaya, you're my hero. I want to be his hero. I, I, I want to be his hero because heroes have influence, don't they? <clears throat> I want to tell you something. In that moment, this six foot four man's heart just melted to jelly. What he didn't know is how much that, how, how moving that is to a grandparent or to a parent. And what he didn't know is how to take that further and say, and therefore, Pops, I would like. 
My guess is he'll figure that out too. But in that moment, I would have said, what would you like? And then I thought about this. How much more does God like to hear you tell him, God, you're my hero. Because you sent your only son out of heaven to die for me. God, you're my hero. I told God that after that. I said, God, you're my hero. How much more does God like to hear us say, God, I love you. I'm not asking for anything. I just love you. God, you're my hero. It's not a bribe. It's not manipulation. It's relational. It's gratitude. It's love. And if you and I are not careful, we can become just like these Ephesians, doing the right things with the right motives, but missing out on the joy of our relationship with God. Is that you today? Jesus told his disciples, listen, that in the last days, lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold he said lawlessness will increase and love will decrease. How timely is that, people? Lawlessness is more extensive than it's ever been. And this generation that is coming up loves and fears everything but God. Jesus, by the way, didn't say that their zeal would grow cold in the last days. Jesus didn't say that their orthodoxy would grow cold. This church... Jesus didn't say, I have this against you. You're a church that puts up with heresy. No, Jesus didn't say, I have this against you. because You're a shallow church. He didn't call them a shallow church. They weren't a shallow church. You know what he said? What I have against you is, you've lost your love for me. And Jesus said this would characterize the last day. We have to understand that love for the church, love for serving God, and love for one another all grow out of our love for God. How do we know that? Jesus said this when he was asked, what's the great commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he said, on these two commandments, the first being love God with all your being, he said, on these two commandments rest everything else. He said, if you get that right, you'll get all the other stuff right. That's what Jesus said. Hudson Taylor, if you have never read a biography on Hudson Taylor, get, get one, read one. It'll, it'll bolster your faith. And he said this, the primary qualification, he was the first missionary to inland China, incredible man of faith, and he said the primary qualification for a missionary, listen, is not love for souls. This guy impacted uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the foreign mission field. And he said, the first qualification to be a missionary is not love for souls. He says, as we are often told. You know what he said the, the, the first qualification for a missionary is? He says, it is to love Jesus. He says, because if you love Jesus, then you'll love his creation. You'll love people. Have you lost your first love? Like the Ephesians, have you lost your first love? 
Well, if so, you have a choice to make, just like they had a choice to make. And that leads me to the last thing I want to show you this morning. Verse 5 shows us that the church was given a promise. Now, I want to tell you right up front, you're going to think this is a little strange, but this is not the promise you want to receive from God. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, here's the promise. If you don't, see, that means you got a choice. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The promise that Jesus gave was connected to the choice that these Ephesians would make. The promise was that he would remove their lampstand. That's not the promise you want from Jesus, but he's saying you've got a choice to make. Even though there's all this good stuff that you're engaged in, there's still a choice, and that choice is important. And if, he, if they made the wrong choice, he would remove their lampstand. That is, he'd remove their influence. He'd remove their usefulness. He'd remove their, uh, his presence and his favor upon them. He would write Ichabod across them, which means the glory of God has departed. By the way, don't ever be fooled. A church can have an appearance but not have the presence of God. A church can have the architecture of a building without being occupied by the heavenly builder. Now, Jesus instructed them on on how to make the right choice. He didn't just tell them, you better make the right choice. He, He instructs them on how to make the right choice. And Jesus always wants you to make the right choice. And Jesus will always instruct you in righteousness if you will keep your eyes on him and you will listen to him. So if we've lost our first love, how do we reconnect? We do what he told them to do. The choice is ours. There are four key words. Write these down. They're not on your outline. And I end with these. There are four key words when it comes to our choice. First of all, we must remember. We don't live in the past, but we better remember what it was like when we first followed Christ. Have you forgotten what it was like when you were a young Christian? When you were full of joy, if you have, you need, listen, you need to remember. You know what you need to do? You need to take a trip down your spiritual memory lane. Go back to that day when you came to Christ. You remember when you came to Christ? Do y'all remember when you came to Christ? If you haven't, you need to today. But if you remember, he says, remember Remember when that fire burned in you for God. You'd do anything for God. Remember that. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten what it was like before you met too many Bible scholars? Have you forgotten what it was like before you met too many church members who were more like sour saints than saved sinners? Have you forgotten what it was like when you followed Jesus because you loved him and you were so grateful that he saved you? Start here and remember the way it was is the way it can be. The second word is repent, he says to them. He tells them to repent. He uses that word twice. And the word repent means to stop. You're you're headed this way. And, And then you stop, and it means you turn around. You do a full 180, you, you turn completely around from the direction that you were going. And, and he tells them to repent. When should we repent? Listen, class, right now. Today is the day. The opportunity will not last. Now is the time to repent. If you've lost your first love, don't wait. 
Don't say, down the road, I'm going to go a little further, and then I'll, I'll get it all right. I'll take care of it now. That's what he was saying to him. Repent. Remember, repent. And then the third word to write down is the word return. Return to what? He says, return to the things you did at first. You know, when your faith, as I said, was, was white hot, when your faith didn't have to, you didn't have to have 15 uh, reasons, uh, you didn't have to be persuaded, you didn't have to be convinced. It was enough that Jesus wanted you to do something, Jesus wanted you to be something, that Jesus loved you for you to say, that's fine with me. Return to that. And then he closes with one final word, reward. You say, where is that? It's in verse 7. Look at this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, what? I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a reward. To the one who conquers, the one that loves Jesus to the end. Whether or not their lampstand would be removed was all conditioned on on their choice. Erwin Lutzer said the church was not theirs to save. It wasn't the Ephesians' church to save. Yet its continuation was dependent on whether they returned to their first love through repenting and good deeds. Let me give you an update on the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> Apparently, they didn't heed the message of Christ. And their lampstand was removed. That's the update on the church of Ephesus. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? I know. I, I've been to this area of Asia Minor where the seven churches were, and, and there hasn't been a church in Ephesus for many centuries. They evidently were doing all the right things, but they'd lost their first love. And somewhere along the line, Jesus said, you're not useful to me anymore. You're not accomplishing what I created you for. We have no dynamic in our relationship. And he removed their lampstand. Dear friend, listen to me this morning as I close. What's true of churches is true of believers. The same thing can happen to you if you re uh, reject the message of Christ. You can lose that sense of His presence. You can lose the favor of God. You know, the Bible says of King Saul, I've been studying King Saul. That's one of the things I've been doing in the last couple of months, particularly in the month of, of July. And, you know, the Bible says that the Spirit of God left him and he didn't even know it. Wow. The same can happen to you and to me if we reject the message of Christ, if we lose him as the focus of our great passion and love. So what is the great lesson? It's real simple. The great lesson of this, of this church is that loving God is our first priority. Loving God is our first priority. Now, I know you're writing, but look at me for a second. How are you doing on that? How are you doing on that? Allison and I recently came into some money. Came through a 
a settlement that we weren't even expecting. And I have the check here with me. And uh, we held on to it for a while and trying to determine what we should do with it. And we determined that we, we would give it all to the church. And so a couple of weeks ago, about the middle ways of our July, Allison had a deposit to make at the bank. And I said, well, it's time to go ahead and put this check in. And so she took it with the deposit, and they accepted the first part of the deposit, but they said of the check, they said, you waited too long. The check is no longer valid. It has expired. We've determined, Alice and I have, and have already done it, we have determined we're going to give this to the church anyway. The amount. All 73 cents of it. <laughs> Just an expression of our generosity. <laughs> we laugh about it, and the reason it expired, because when I got it, I thought, I'm just going to hang on to that. I'm not about to deposit that. But it did expire, and, and it had gotten in a deposit set up, and they said it's not valid anymore. But you know what? Here's what I thought about that. The opportunity for Jesus Christ can't be held on to. It will expire. Did you know that? It will expire. The day will come, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will not be able to say, okay, now I'm ready. That's why today is so important. That's why right now really does count forever. The day, it will expire. The opportunity for you to come into the kingdom will expire if you don't respond, if you don't make the right choice. Now, maybe you are saved, but you have wandered away from your first love. I want to tell you something. You need to repent, too. Because the opportunity to be, get back on the path of God one day will, retire, uh, 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 will expire as well. When it will be too late to get your act together. And you'll be accountable as a believer before him one day. And instead of hearing those words you want to hear, you won't hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now is the important moment. Would you pray with me? Lord, let us learn the lesson from the Ephesians, from the loveless church. Lord, let us never be loveless believers. I, I mean, God, in love with you, would you rekindle the fire of our hearts and our love and our passion for you? And I pray for any this morning who are watching live stream or television in this live audience who, Father, have never truly trusted you. They've just been going through religious motions, but they've never trusted you. Lord, would you today compel them to give their lives to you because the hour is coming when the offer will expire. And Lord, for others that have wandered away from you as their first love, they've, they've crowded you out. They're doing right things, but, Father, they're missing the joy 
It's drudgery. Father, today, would you call them to a new passion to walk with you like they did at first? To endure patiently, yes. To not put up with bad doctrine or bad people, but most of all, to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you speak to them this morning? Would you break their hearts about how much you have not stopped loving them even if they've stopped loving you. Thank you for waiting and keeping the moment open. But let us not miss it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? I'll be here at the front, and I want to invite you to slip out and make your way to the front. Our staff will be on the aisles. And maybe this morning, you just want to come and pray around this altar. Talk to, to, the, to Jesus. There's something powerful about a bent knee. It humbles us before God. Maybe that's what you want to do. And just come talk to Him. Maybe you prayed that prayer to trust Christ. You come and, and you say, Pastor, I did that. I, I trusted Christ this morning as my Savior. We'll take it from there. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and say, I need a church home, a church family to help me. I want to walk again in the passion of my first love, and I, I need a church family to help me, and I want to join Ridgecrest. Come to one of us. We'll take it from there. Don't you worry about it. But this is that moment, okay? We'll be gone here soon. You'll go back into your week with all the pulls and messages of that. And if you're not careful, the devil will rob you of what God is trying to do in your heart right now. Don't miss this moment.